This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for January 12th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today is our 100th COVID-19 podcast. I'm not sure that this is cause for celebration, so we're not going to have any cake today, but it is a time to reflect on some of the broader lessons that we've learned. But before we do that, let's take a look at a few things that we've published today that address immunity to COVID-19. I'd like to begin with two studies that address vaccine effectiveness over time. The first of these looked at the two vaccines available in the United Kingdom, the mRNA vaccine BNT162B2 from Pfizer and the adenovirus-vectored vaccine CHADOX1 from AstraZeneca. So how did this study work and what did we learn? So this study used a test-negative design that we've seen used in many of the effectiveness studies we've published. And they looked at vaccine effectiveness over time and how it changed. The study was performed between December of 2020 and October of 2021. The conclusions weren't surprising given what else we've heard. Both vaccines were highly effective against both mild and severe disease in the first several weeks after vaccination, but their effectiveness declined over time. By 20 weeks after completing the two-dose course, the AstraZeneca vaccine was only 44% effective while the Pfizer vaccine was about 66% effective. The decline in effectiveness was most striking in those who were older than age 65. Importantly, both vaccines remained effective at preventing hospitalization and death, with effectiveness against these endpoints remaining above 80% for the AstraZeneca vaccine and 90% for the Pfizer vaccine. Before we discuss this further, let's move to a second study, this one from North Carolina, that looked at the vaccines available in the United States. It included the Pfizer vaccine, Moderna's mRNA-1273, and AD26-CoV-2S from Janssen. So how did this study work? Here, the investigators linked data from databases within the state to identify those who were diagnosed with COVID and their clinical outcomes, and those who had received vaccine during an almost identical time period as that one used in the United Kingdom study. They constructed a model that took into account varying factors that altered the risk of disease and used it to calculate the vaccine effectiveness over time. This group studied an overlapping set of vaccines and came up with findings that were similar to the group from the UK. Both mRNA vaccines had very high effectiveness at two months, better than 90%. This declined to 66 to 80% in seven months. The Janssen vaccine had a peak effectiveness of 75% at one month, which decreased to about 60% at five months, That was the last time point they studied because this agent was deployed at a later time. The investigators also looked at protection against hospitalization and death. Although they had a lot of missing data for this analysis, it did once again appear that vaccines were very effective with protective rates for the mRNA vaccines close to or above 90%, even at seven months, and above 80% for the full time period for the Janssen vaccine. Steve, I think these data reinforce what we've seen from places like Israel and Qatar and extend it to some of the other major vaccines. Although all vaccines wane in effectiveness over time, they still maintain very reasonable protection against severe disease and death. Of course, both studies were performed during the appearance of the Delta strain. So again, it's difficult to measure the contribution of waning versus a new viral variant. And both were performed before the appearance of the Omicron variant. So we will see how well these vaccines are working during this new period. So, Eric, I think that what we learned from these studies is a bit of a Rorschach. And what I mean by that is these data 
tell different communities different things and how we look at the endpoints of greatest interest. And as we look at the decrement in vaccine effectiveness, which is one way to look at this, which over several months falls from you know, 80, 90 percent to 60, 70 percent. That's an important observation that has important meaning. But you can also look at this as the preservation of protection against severe illness, maintaining upwards of 90 percent for at least two of the vaccines. And I think that is an important issue that we have to keep in mind is what do we want these vaccines to do and how do we decide how effective they are and what societal benefit we hope they will achieve. Lindsay, I think that's exactly right. And it's important to think about vaccines in the context of a public health strategy. Initially, when vaccines appeared, we all hoped that they would eliminate disease, certainly prevent transmission of disease and therefore lead to elimination. That hope, I think, has kind of fallen by the wayside because the vaccines are not distributed widely enough and because they're not quite as effective as we'd hoped as they looked initially. And we're really talking about controlling morbidity and mortality at this point. For that, the vaccines remain extremely good tools, but we may have been asking too much of them, especially given all of the other measures that we as a society weren't willing to take in order to really stomp on the virus. I mean, I think, Eric, we have to think carefully about our expectations. And when this pathogen emerged, when SARS-CoV-2 emerged, it was new. It had not been in the population before. And our natural instinct was we could shut it down, stop transmission, and eradicate it. At what point should we have or do we realize that it is transmitting broadly the vast majority of transmission is asymptomatic so individuals are not aware that they are infected may never become aware that they were infected and once we understood this aspect of its biology how do we then change our thinking of our expectations of control and what it is we hope to control and i think controlling severe illness is a terrific goal with great benefit. Eradicating it from the human population is obviously attractive. And in my view, at what point should we have realized that that was not possible, but rather changing its characteristics in terms of the morbidity it causes? And this requires a rethinking even today as to what our goals are. And how do we deploy our technologies, vaccines in terms of broad distribution to those who need it, as well as testing and other strategies that are not always being deployed in a way that has the maximal benefit? I'd like to touch briefly on another study from today about how well the Pfizer vaccine prevents serious illness and death in adolescents. This is a group that's at lower risk of severe COVID-19, but they can nevertheless get quite ill and even die. That's certainly true. And this group of investigators described 445 adolescents who had to be hospitalized or even progressed to more severe disease. The study came from 23 states using a test negative design that compared those who were hospitalized with COVID as their primary diagnosis with those who were not and looked at the rate of vaccination in both groups. The raw numbers pretty much tell the whole story. 
Of the 445 case patients, only 17 were fully vaccinated. This produced a vaccine efficacy of 94% for protection against severe disease. It isn't a surprise, but it is a pretty graphic representation of how well vaccines work, even in a population we consider to be at lower risk. So I think, Eric, it's important to not only look at the relative benefit, but also the absolute risk. Adolescents and children are at substantially lower risk for severe illness than our highest risk populations. However, as these data show, vaccination can further decrease that risk. And for our healthy children, anything we can do to decrease the risk of severe illness is a very important consideration from a public health and a family standpoint. You know, Lindsay, we just talked about how the vaccines are not as effective in preventing transmission of disease. And yet, one of the benefits of vaccinating adolescents and children is that they are less likely to bring disease into the household and into their schools where they're attending. So I think there is clearly a public health benefit. That's not described in this study, of course. This is describing the individual benefit for the recipients. But I think there are still substantial societal benefits to vaccination. And Eric, I think that's an important point that not enough research has gone into is how do we alter transmission dynamics that can really benefit the public health. And our children are an important part of the community that can and do lead to transmission of a variety of viruses, including this one. When we started doing these podcasts, we thought it would last a few weeks, maybe a couple of months at most, but here we are doing our 100th weekly recording. Now that we're more than two years into the outbreak, I thought it would be a good time to move away from what's happening this week and reflect on the big picture. So along those lines, I'm going to ask each of you to give me one takeaway, something that we haven't perhaps spent a lot of time discussing in the past, but something of importance that you see coming out of the past couple of years. Let me start with Eric. Okay, I'm going to go with the fact that we have seen what are almost miracles of basic science and translational science to generate the tools we can use to help prevent disease, prevent severe disease, and now increasingly treat disease once it's occurred. And that's been amazing. However, we still have a bad outbreak. And why is that? It's because we're not so good at carrying these tools through to implementation. We really have hit substantial roadblocks in increasing vaccination rates, in making these agents available, not only throughout the world, which has been a major problem, but even equitably within our country. So I have to give our response to COVID very mixed grades. We're good at making stuff. We're just not so good at using what we've made. So Eric, I think, you know, as someone who's been part of developing some of the countermeasures, I couldn't agree with you more how terrific science has been in allowing us to develop tools that meaningfully protect us from this virus and its consequences. However, the implementation challenge, which is huge, has also highlighted for me the intersection between politics, individual perceptions, and what the science really tells us, and how we as a community 
have muddled through these crisscrossing forces, often to our collective detriment, allowing the virus to spread more widely. And I think that's another area that we as a community are going to have to think about as we face future pandemics, is how do we have a public health response that is appropriate and targeted to the pathogen and not get caught up in non-scientific forces that distract us from controlling an outbreak? Yeah, and I think it goes even beyond politics, Lindsay. It's really logistics as much as anything. You'll remember well when testing was rolled out. There wasn't really a political question here, but in some countries, and particularly in the U.S., it just took a very long time for tests to become available. And when they became available, they weren't rationally distributed. Here in Massachusetts, where we are, when vaccines became available, at the beginning, there was a lot of trouble in accessing them. And there weren't enough, but instead of having a clear plan, there was this sort of free-for-all where people had to make phone calls or get on the computer in the middle of the night to try to sign up. In places like Florida, there were lines of cars that were hours long where people would get in line and hope to get vaccines. We've just done not a very good job at many different places. And I think there are a number of reasons for that, but one of them is a lack of preparation. After having been through this experience of COVID, not that we're done, but as we've had these couple years to look back on, are we going to be any better if the next pandemic comes along? I don't think that we've done that well, and I'm not sure that we've learned lessons that are going to help us next time. I'm not sure we've figured out the testing strategy even currently. And I agree that over the last two years, that has been a series of challenges on many different dimensions. But I think your point, Eric, is very well taken, that we still have much to learn about how to best deploy our technologies and to deploy them for what purpose. Because I think a public health transmission purpose is different than a workforce protection purpose, which is different than how do I protect my family? How do we identify who needs treatment? So even in the testing arena, in a well-resourced set of communities such as Europe and the U.S., I think there's still a lot to be learned how to even deploy that conceptual strategy where we have a lot to learn today. And then, Lindsay, what's your takeaway? Well, I'm going to reflect on this from a different angle. And you know, as I've, over the last two years, chatted with my children and others, something that has emerged is, what does the virus think? What does the virus want? And how do we understand that in terms of the likely direction it will go? There are certain characteristics of SARS-CoV-2, such as respiratory spread, asymptomatic illness or lack of illness, therefore facilitating silent transmission that gave this virus certain advantages. You know, two plus years ago, it had to jump from another arena to the human. It had to adapt to the nares, the human immune system, the other defenses that we have to successfully replicate and then spread in a seronaive population. As it has done this over the last two years, it actually is agnostic, in my view, to causing illness in us. 
if its goal is to replicate and spread, in fact, if it causes less severe illness, that actually is a selective advantage for it because of the silent transmission. And we've witnessed this in some ways with different evolution in different parts of the world as this virus becomes more able to replicate in the nares and therefore transmit more quickly, as Omicron has shown us, where it can replicate and spread within days as opposed to several days. And as we as a community have responded to it, the virus has had to adapt to the immune responses, be it from natural infection or vaccine-elicited immune responses. And this has caused it to evade immunodominant responses and attenuate in certain ways so it can spread more easily. And that has been a fascinating part of biology to watch and for the scientific community to help understand and for us to leverage to try and retard its spread and disease causing. So at this point, you know, where will the virus go given what I view as its goal, which is to replicate, not to hurt us? It wouldn't surprise me if it becomes more attenuated, as Omicron suggests, or becomes more transmissible, as Omicron suggests, and perhaps will sort out how to evade immunodominant immune responses, both from natural infection as well as vaccine-elicited immune responses. But if it attenuates and if it were to become like the other four seasonal coronaviruses, that may not be a bad outcome, given that in my view, the goal is for us not to get sick, meaning hospitalized and seriously ill, and the virus's goal to spread. And if it spreads more silently and asymptomatically, it will be more successful. So I'm not sure I know the complete lesson, but I think what we've been witnessing over the last two years is the virus emerge in a new population that is seronaive and has rapidly spread, has evolved, and in that evolution over the two years has characteristics which suggest that it's moving in a direction to coexist with us rather than to eradicate us, if one were to take that view. And it'll be interesting to further watch the biology of evolution, which is really what's been going on as we as a community have tried to prevent serious illness. It's a really interesting observation. And I think that it does make sense that in the grand scheme of things, what's best for the virus is to be less virulent and be able to transmit without killing a lot of its hosts, without disabling them, without removing them from society. Because if they're sick and they don't go outside, they don't transmit disease. The problem is that evolution is not very linear. It's saltatory. It jumps from place to place it jumps randomly in an unpredictable fashion. So before we get to that optimal point, the virus could go in any direction, and that makes it very unpredictable. There certainly could be viral variants that emerge that are actually more virulent than the current ones. And perhaps over some evolutionary time, those will get wiped out, but they can still be devastating in the short term. So it's hard to make any short-term predictions based on evolutionary direction, though I think you're right that it 
does make sense that things like Omicron, should Omicron really prove to be less virulent, as it seems likely, then things like Omicron should continue to emerge, which is a hopeful sign. I mean, I want to be careful about praising the virus in any way. It's been quite devastating. But it's how evolution works. And your point is well taken, Eric, that it is unpredictable and small changes can have big effects in a good or bad direction. Witnessing how Delta emerged, followed by Omicron, and within weeks, Delta has largely disappeared. Giving a window into insight into what is a selective advantage for the virus, how it competes for certain replicative niches, and how it competes against itself in terms of what is dominant. But I do share your sense that we need to be cautious that it will only move in a direction that causes less disease. There may well be certain directions that could make disease worse or make disease worse in certain populations. However, if the goal of the virus is to replicate efficiently, rapidly, and in large numbers, then the less illness it causes and the faster it does that will play to its advantage. But as you pointed out, an evolutionary event may go in good or very bad directions. So we continue to need to develop measures to control the virus, in particular in relation to severe illness. A word of caution. I sound very negative through this whole discussion. I'm taking all the bad positions here. But I do want to say that in a much more optimistic note, we have developed amazing tools And those have led in part to the fact that this is a much less deadly disease than it was early on. A combination of evolution with what might be less virulent virus, Omicron, together with vaccination, together with upcoming treatments and better treatments, even for hospitalized patients with severe disease, has led to a very much lower death rate right now from the virus than there had been. Now, remember, the total number of deaths is still large in many places. And that's because there's so much Omicron around. But the rate per person infected seems to be far lower than it was at the beginning of the epidemic. And I think that's likely to be a trend that will continue. And Eric, we have to be careful about, again, which disease one is concerned about, because there also is the emerging long COVID something we don't understand enough about, how viral variants affect that. And I'll remind us all about Omicron. It was identified a little over 60 days ago, anywhere in the world, and has now spread globally, dominating transmission in many, many communities. We know nothing about its potential impact on problems such as long COVID. So there still are many more questions we have to understand, but our response to the acute illness, to hospitalization, to death is something that is immediate and urgent, but our understanding of other complications is still quite limited given the realities of time and how that plays with some of these other illnesses caused by COVID. I couldn't agree more. There's certainly a lot of interest in long COVID and what it means. But the high quality research on it has really only just started. And this is an area that we really don't understand and needs to be explored. Steve, now I'm going to ask you for one. 
the pandemic has been very challenging for those of us who are in the business of communicating science. You've been in this business for a long time as an editor of a medical journal. What have you learned from your experience through the epidemic about how to communicate? So one negative and one positive. The frustrating negative has been the difficulty of effectively combating misinformation. But speaking somewhat parochially, I think that the positive in our case has been the remarkable commitment of the journal staff to getting valid science in front of clinicians and policymakers on what's become a faster and faster timetable. So Steve, I think that has been one of the big challenges with COVID has just been the speed. The speed the virus has spread, the speed with which our communities have had to respond, the speed with which information is shared. And so there is misinformation. And unfortunately, there are too many out there who encourage this. But there's also limited information and how we share limited information that may change over the next days. How do you think we've learned better to respond to that or to help inform our community of information that is almost in transit in our understanding of it? Well, thinking of this strictly from the view of a medical journal, I think two things. The way the original material is edited to make the limitations clear from the outset, and then the possibility of editorializing on that original material to further give it context and let people know what might be coming next, what this says and what this doesn't say. Steve, you used the term parochial before, and it's hard, I think, to answer this question in too general a fashion. Our journal is different from many other medical journals in that we do exactly what you're saying. We very carefully curate material and we have the capacity and resources to edit very carefully. That's not true throughout all of the medical and scientific literature. In addition, we have the advent of preprint servers which have been very important in getting information out very quickly, but that's unedited and uncurated. I think it's a challenge for the community, not just for us as a journal, but for the community to think about how we understand the material that's out there, the different levels of material, ranging from uncurated, unedited, to highly curated and highly edited, because there's important information throughout that spectrum. And the pace at which can come out varies throughout that spectrum. So I think the burden is not just on us. It's on the consumers of information to figure out how best to look at this big, what's now ecosystem of scientific and medical communications. But Eric, I think that's also part of our job is to help the community understand what we know today with confidence versus emerging insights. And emerging insights, tomorrow, additional data may change how we think about it. And I think that traditional medical communication 20 years ago often were years of work summarized in a report that is definitive with all issues addressed, resolved, and reanalyzed. Now, an observation is made in place X, and everyone in the world knows about it by this afternoon. And we need to help our community and ourselves understand what that means as quickly as possible. And our communities realize that they are watching the scientific process, not waiting for its answer. Because again, I think as we talked about earlier in this podcast, 
some of the reports we're publishing today, different communities will see different answers in those reports based on what their interests are. And I think we as a community, both as medical publishers, as scientists, as care providers, and as patients, need to realize that the same information may have different meaning to each of those communities. And tomorrow, we may learn a bit more that changes how we understand that. And I think it is good that information is shared quickly so that everyone has the best access to make the best decisions. But it also means we all as a community have to accept that this report today may not be as definitive as we want it to be because the field is just moving that fast and technology allows us to communicate just as quickly. I agree entirely, Lindsay. I think that the fact that so much information is out there and widely available to the public has created a tremendous difficulty for policymakers. On one hand, they have access to all kinds of information, which is great for making policy. On the other hand, everyone else does and can easily second guess all of those policy decisions. I think we've seen that over and over again in various policy pronouncements where there is contradictory information out there or new information comes out an hour after an announcement and there's a tremendous amount of second guessing. For the most part, that's a good thing. People should be thinking about whether or not a policy comports with the information that's out there. On the other hand, it's made it very difficult to appear authoritative. And it's important for our public health authorities to appear authoritative and to be authoritative because they are setting important rules that people can follow and keep themselves safe. And the reciprocal of that, it's important for our readers or our listeners to understand that as new information emerges, the policies, approaches, care practices should change as well. And that requires a more dynamic approach to what we do than what historically we've been used to. I think it's a very good thing. I just think that the how we communicate is going to need to catch up with how the practice and science of medicine is today, given the structural changes over the last 10 to 20 years in our communicating. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.